we're moving today to Acts chapter 18. And Paul has moved from Athens to Corinth. Some would think that Athens was the uh, capital of the province of Macedonia, but it wasn't. Corinth was more or less the capital. It was a thriving port city. And while Athens might have been known for its philosophers and its philosophy, Corinth was known for its philandering. Corinth was maybe more or less the Las Vegas of today. It was such a corrupt city that uh, we have an English word that comes from Corinth. That word is Corinthianized. So if a person is thoroughly corrupted, he has been Corinthianized. And you know, it might seem unlikely to us that God would send the Apostle Paul to a place like that. But that's exactly the kind of places God sends the gospel because the gospel is for sinners. Sinners like me and sinners like you. And as currently I look at the culture that's around us, I think it's pretty Corinthian. And since that's the case, as we look at Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17, we want to be paying attention to see what we can learn from Paul's time there and what we can apply to our time here. I just remind you that we are in stage four of the book of Acts. We were to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are witnesses to the ends of the earth. We are in stage four together. So uh, if you would, please stand for the reading of the Word of God from Acts chapter 18. You'll find this printed for you in your worship guide, and there is an outline on the next to the last panel. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and the entire, his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. 
This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews are making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names of your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is your word, inspired by your spirit, inerrant, without flaw, unchanging, and true. As it was inspired by your spirit, and we pray this morning that by that same work, the work of the very spirit of Christ, you would empower its proclamation and you would apply it to our hearts. That we might learn what we should learn, that we might apply what we should apply, and that we might be what you have called us to be. O Lord our God, by your great power and grace, be at work in this place and in our hearts today. And we ask it's in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in uh, 1980, at age 38, I moved with my family to Richardson to take the pastorate of a small church that could not afford to pay me a working salary. And after three and a half years in seminary, uh, we had learned to live on very little, so it was very little. And for two and a half years, I made tents. Not really tents, but I was doing working construction drawings on a drawing board in my bedroom. And I did it for two and a half years until the time that the church could grow to afford to pay me. And I took that provision over two and a half years of God, as God's sign that I should stay in Texas, and keep on speaking. And so I did. At that that particular time, that church, Town North Presbyterian Church, was the only PCA church in Collin and in Dallas County. Now, there are dozens of churches in those places, and dozens more throughout Texas. 41 years later, I look back and I see with eyes of gratitude that God's grace in Christ in calling me to just speak the gospel in Texas was used by him to do many wonderful things. And sometime, maybe when we have the time, I can tell you the whole story because it's a story of the grace of God spreading the gospel throughout this state. So, looking back and recalling verse 8 of chapter 1 of Acts, where Jesus tells the disciples that we are called to be witnesses. Remember a couple weeks ago, David said, remember, we're not all called to be the Apostle Paul or missionaries that go to the ends of the earth, but there is a call for all of us to be witnesses. And so, As witnesses, we're called to speak of Christ or speak the gospel of Christ. 
So what I want to consider with you this morning is this question. If we are called to be witnesses, and if we are called to keep on speaking, what is it that we will find when we speak the gospel? What is it that we are going to find? Well, if we just remember a little bit of where we've been in Acts, and remember what happened to the disciples, what happened to the apostles, we do not have to even think for a minute that we need to be biblical scholars to reach the right conclusion. Because the right conclusion is simply this. We will find opposition. The word will oppose the gospel. Paul, as the Jews were becoming abusive and opposing him, I can't help but think he was saying, oh no, not this again. This is, is this going to be Philippi and Lystra? I don't know if I could take another stoning or another beating with rods or another flogging. And we know he was frightened because in verse 9, when, when Christ appears to him in a vision, he says, don't be afraid. Opposition will scare us. I don't know about you, but I know about me. Opposition tends to put my adrenaline system on alert. Jesus said it this way. If they hate you, remember that they hated me first. So when we think about it, where does this opposition come from? Well, obviously it comes from the Antichrist. It comes from that one who opposes Christ. But in our world, I want to propose two basic directions that it comes from. First of all, it comes from those who deny that Jesus is the Christ. Paul was preaching in the synagogues that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the very Son of God. And that's one of the main places the opposition always comes from. Jesus put it this way in Matthew. He said, those who are not with me are against me. Those who do not gather, scatter. You see, Christ is the cutting edge of all of it. When you bring Christ into a conversation, you can have casual conversations with people about God, and they might listen to you and give you a, a sort of a, a nod, it's okay. But when you start talking about Jesus, and when you start talking about his cross, when you start talking about what he did for sinners, all of a sudden, you will encounter opposition. So that's the first place we see the opposition coming from. The second place we see it coming from is from those who think they are self-sufficient. Throughout this passage, you see the word Jews. In the context of Acts, in the context of the gospel, this refers to those Jews who believe that through the keeping of the law, they could be self-justified, that they would be self-sufficient, that they could present themselves to God as acceptable. And they oppose the gospel because the gospel says the exact opposite to that. And so they oppose the gospel when it confronts them and what they believe. I mean, have you noticed lately what's been happening with the word science in the media, in the lips of politicians, and everywhere? We need to follow the science. We need to believe the science. We need to, if you would, exalt what science will tell us. In fact, it is almost like they are saying, we are crowning science 
as our king. It's really nothing more than a metaphor of man saying, we know everything. Our knowledge is exhaustive. And that kind of culture always produces anti-Christian activity, no matter where it is. If you take those things which have sprung from the Hegelian dialectic, things like Darwin's evolution, things like Marx's communism, things like Wellhausen's documentary hypothesis, every one of them begins with this presupposition. And that presupposition is that there is no God. That's where they start, every one of them. But that's not where we begin. We begin with the reality that there is a God and that he has made himself known. He has spoken not only in the creation, in his word, but by his son. And so the gospel comes and confronts those who would deny that Jesus is the Christ. It confronts those who would say that they are sufficient on their own merits, that maybe my life was put in the scales, it would be more good than bad, and therefore I would be acceptable. The gospel confronts all of that when it proclaims that none are righteous, no, not one. And this whole thing seems to be coming together, if you would, in the merging of the multiplication of computers and artificial intelligence. That's all you hear about. The multiplication of server farms everywhere, the incorporation of artificial intelligence and all this, everything's going to be better, everything's going to be perfect. We're going to understand and we're going to know all that we need to know. In fact, as we observe what's happening, that, that culture is saying that the things that God has said are evil, things that God has said are sin, are not really bad, they're not really evil. In fact, they're almost good. They're the kinds of things that that we should celebrate, that we should find acceptable. And God says they're, they're not acceptable. And it comes to the point where we have to come to grips with the very proposition that when everything is permissible, nothing will be forbidden. And that's lawlessness. The synonym for the, the name of the Antichrist is the man of lawlessness. God is a God of law, of rule, and of justice. But man is saying, we know better in all things. There is a confrontation. And when the gospel confronts those things, those things oppose the gospel and those who speak it. You see, God doesn't need to use Google. And we're never going to be able to Google ourselves to heaven. Back it won't surprise me that if the modern Tower of Babel, that attempt of man to ascend to the height of God is going to be built out of microchips. And as God destroyed the original one, so he will destroy the so-called wisdom of man. Now, in the military, we were taught that if you were advancing on an operation, and if you are not encountering opposition, you might be going in the wrong direction. An indication that you're going in the right direction would be that you are encountering 
opposition. And so as we do that, as we are confronted by that opposition, what are we supposed to do? And I would propose to you that the text sort of screams to us, we're supposed to keep on speaking. Now at this particular point, I would like to just simply say to you that the gospel is simple. It's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. One sinner telling another sinner where to find forgiveness. Now, as a witness, you're not required to have a whole body of theology to be able to handle every objection that comes, not to be terrified that somebody might put something in front of you and ask you, what's your view of the millennium or whatever. What a witness does is gives first-hand testimony. And a witness for Jesus gives first-hand testimony about themselves and Christ. Jesus saved me, a sinner. Without Christ, I would find it impossible to cope with the difficulty of aging and of illness and of loss. A word of witness. Now, somebody can't say to you, that's not true. No, you say, that's true. That's my story. What, what's your story with Jesus? It was Jesus who helped me overcome my addiction. It was Jesus that got me through this very difficult situation in my life with my children. You are supposed to have a word of testimony so that when you are called to testify, what you are saying, this is what Jesus did to me. Every one of us should be able to say, Jesus has changed and is changing my life. And if you haven't maybe thought of some of those things that you can say, it would be good to have a couple of them prepared and sort of keep them in your bag when somebody asks you, well, what do you think about Jesus? And you say, well, I, I think a lot about Jesus, but I want to tell you what I know about Jesus. Jesus came into my life and he turned it around. What's your witness? And that's what we are called to do as we are called to keep on speaking. Now, when we encounter opposition, there's sometimes the tendency to be discouraged. But what this passage tells us, that when we encounter opposition, we're going to encounter something else, and that is opportunity. When Paul comes to Corinth, he finds opportunity. He finds opportunity in the synagogue. He finds opportunity with Titius. He finds opportunity with Crispus. He finds opportunity with the many Corinthians. And so what kind of opportunity are you going to find? Let me suggest three places you're going to find it. First of all, you're going to find it with people who are searching. Titius was a God-fearer, a searcher. He was in the synagogue hanging around, hoping to learn something about God, to answer questions that were burdening his heart that the philosophy, the empty philosophies of Athens hadn't answered. And there are all of those kind of people are all around us, people looking for answers about life and about things that happen, about why that apartment building in Miami collapsed. That's like the Tower of Siloam that fell. They search for those kind of answers. And we are called to bear witness to the fact that God and his sovereignty rules over all of that. 
when I was in St. Louis in seminary, I had a friend named George. And George was very hostile to the gospel. And he would oppose everybody that came to him and talked about Jesus. He would oppose them in his words, in his arguments, in his objections, and forcefully. But after George came to Christ, he told me, he said, you know, while I was opposing them, while I was pushing back on them, I remembered everything that they were saying. Your witness is not in vain. If God is opening ears, it's being heard. So he finds opportunity with the God-fearers. He also finds opportunity with those for whom Christ died. Jesus says to him, I have many people in this city. Christ said, I came to lay down my life for the sheep. All that the Father has given me, I will save. I will lose none of them. If Jesus has sheep in a place, they are his. They will be his. And nothing can change that. If he had many people in Corinth, certainly and surely he has many people in Dallas, in the suburb where you live. We are, if you would, surrounded with heathen, surrounded with opportunity, surrounded with people who Christ has already secured their salvation. You see, the reality is opportunities around us everywhere. And in Acts 13, we're told those that accepted Christ, those that believed the gospel, were those who were appointed unto salvation. Appointed by who? Appointed by God the Father who in good purpose, according to the pleasure of his will, chose a people to be his own. And once that list was compiled, the Lord Jesus Christ said, here I am, send me. And he came. He came to be the savior of sinners. So wherever you are, it's important what you say. It's important how you speak it. It's important to keep on speaking as we find opportunity to keep on speaking the gospel in love and loving those we are speaking to. We're speaking to them because we love them and because we love Christ. And so we keep on speaking. And so as we speak into that opportunity, what will we also find? Well, just what Paul found. He found fellowship. When he came to Corinth, there in that city were two people, two Christians who had been expelled by uh, Claudius from Rome, who providentially just happened to be in the same business he was in, tent making. He linked up with them and they went into business and made tents and supported the ministry. And he had fellowship with them. Later we're told that Silas and Timothy and Luke came to join him. And he in fact went with them and that fellowship was together, the fellowship of like-minded believers. We're the body of Christ, don't you know that? We're the family of God. We're brothers and sisters. We are one army under the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, one army that is, if you would, to face the world, the flesh, and the devil, and all that it would throw against us. And in that fellowship, as we are together, as we are truly a band of brothers and sisters in the family of God, our allegiance is unshaken. We do not rally 
under a, under a pride flag, but we gladly rush to take our place beneath the cross of Christ. Now, with all that was happening, Paul was frightened. Verse 9 tells us, the Lord Jesus appeared to him that night in a vision. He said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because he was being afraid. I mean, seriously, if you were facing in memory what he had been through in Philippi and Lister, I would have been quaking in my boots, shoes, or whatever else I was wearing. And what did Paul find in that time? He found fellowship with Christ himself. He said, don't be afraid, Paul, for I will be with you. He found the promise of Emmanuel. When you are speaking and bearing witness to Christ, you are not alone. The Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ is right with you. You are bringing the light of the world into darkness. There is no loneliness there. It is the finest and fullest fellowship that we can ever have. It is union with the one who died for us in testimony to him. We are not in the dark. I mean, when you were young, did you have a place that you were afraid of, a dark place, maybe an attic or a garage or maybe not in Texas, but a basement? A place where you sort of hesitated to go unless you were accompanied? And encountering opposition, we may see opportunity, in fact, as one of those dark places, but as we see it as one of those dark places, we need to remember that in the midst of that, we have fellowship with the Lord. It is He Himself that goes in there with us. What better words of encouragement for us? I will be with you. And they were not just spoken to Paul. They are spoken to you and to me this day from the word of God. If you will be my witnesses, I will be with you. So, what great words of encouragement these are. So what do we find when we keep on speaking? We're going to find our destiny as a Christian. And a disciple's destiny is to be a witness. Everybody who knows Jesus is qualified to be a witness. There are no disqualifications. Everybody who trusts Christ Everybody whose life has been transformed by his saving work is a qualified witness. Now, it's no secret that I am older than most preachers. So that's a laugh line. <laughs> but frequently I've thought of fully retiring, and Pamela and I have uh, discussed it. And despite of the opposition of, of age and health, I find myself in the midst of opportunity. I find myself in the midst of opportunity. I find myself in the midst of fellowship. And I find great encouragement from my wife, Pamela. I find great encouragement from my friend, David, who urges me to keep on preaching. And I find great encouragement from so many of you in your fellowship. 
Great encouragement, so much so that I believe the Lord is providentially saying to me, keep on speaking, do not be silent, I am with you. And so what's your takeaway? What is it that God speaking to you in this passage wants you to do? He's calling you to keep on speaking keep on speaking, bearing witness to the Christ who died for you. Pray with me. O oh Lord, fill our hearts with love for you. Fill our mouths with words that bear witness and testimony to your changing power in our life, that you might use our changed lives to change the lives of others. Even this day, O oh Lord, reach into every heart that knows you not and bring them, bring them to yourself. Be glorified in our midst. Be exalted and draw men, women, and boys and girls to yourself. We ask and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.